Well, just as, uh, as the offering plates come around, I just want to read for us this morning from Matthew chapter 28. If you have a Bible, you can uh, flip open there. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to view the tomb. And there was a violent earthquake because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. And he rolled back the stone and was sitting on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes was as white as snow. The guards were so shaken by fear of him that they became like dead men. And the angel told the women, Don't be afraid, because I know that you're looking for Jesus who is crucified. But he's not here. He has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. And then go quickly and tell his disciples, He's risen from the dead, and indeed he is going ahead of you to Galilee. And you'll see him there. Listen, I have told you. And so departing quickly from the tomb with fear and with great joy, they ran to tell the disciples the news. Just then, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up, they took hold of his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus told them, Don't be afraid, but go and tell my brothers to leave for Galilee, and they will see me there. This morning, following the first service, I had a couple of people say, the service was not what I expected it to be, in a good way. <laughs> so this morning will be maybe a little different than what you expected for Easter Sunday morning. But this morning, we're going to look at the outrageous claim that 2,000 years ago, a man who died an unbelievably horrific death, then came back to an unbelievably wonderful life and offers to include us in that wonderful life, if we trust him. See, here's the claim that Christianity makes that we celebrate on Easter Sunday, that Jesus was a real person who lived and died in history. That Second, that, that Jesus had planned to die as a substitute for sinners to take the punishment that we all deserve for turning against God. But it can't end there because the logic of the cross and the hope of Christianity is that uh, it's 100% tied to the fact and the claim that Jesus physically rose from the dead. We have to have all three of those together or it's, it's nothing. We should all be out enjoying the sunshine. Now, I don't know how you feel about Jesus or church or Christianity or Christians today. Uh, you're tuned in, whether this morning or sometime later, if you're watching online or in the podcast. But these questions and these claims simply cannot be avoided. Either they're true or they're not, but we need to ask the questions. See, if Jesus really did come back to life, then it means that the creator and maker of time and space itself stepped into time and space for you and for me. Because he loved us. It means that you are worth his death and he wants you in his life. It means that you are more seen and more known and more loved than you could ever dare hope. And the greatest offer ever is made and is sitting on the table waiting for you to accept it. And so it all starts with the question, is Jesus' life historical? Did Jesus really live? Because again, if he didn't, Let's go have lunch. There is one 2015 survey in the UK, and I would suspect that the numbers are similar here, if not increased over the last eight years or so. 
One survey in the UK found that 40% of adults either didn't think Jesus was a real historical person or they weren't sure. Let's round that up to 50% for now. I think that's probably fair. But the famously skeptical New Testament uh, critic and theologian and scholar Bart Ehrman says, the reality is, whatever you may think of Jesus, you don't have to agree that he's a son of God. You don't have to agree about all these things. But the reality is, he certainly did exist. And this view is held by virtually every historical expert on the planet. See, we can actually take away the Bible. We can take away Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four biographies that we have of Jesus, and we can still reconstruct the basic facts of Jesus' life. From other extra-biblical writings, other historians, Jewish and Roman historians, we can find that this Jesus was a first-century rabbi, that he was Jewish, that he was believed, he believed he was, and others believed he was the Christ, that he was crucified by Pilate, who governed in a 10-year window from A.D. 27 to 37, and then was worshipped by his followers as divine. None of that comes from the Bible. Well, it does, it's in the Bible, but we can get those facts from outside of the Bible. So yes, Jesus lived. He was a historical figure, a person who walked the planet just like we are today. Well, the second question then is, can we actually trust the Gospels? So we've got some historical information. Let's, let's hone in on the Gospels. Let me ask you a question. If you left this morning and decided, you know what, I'm going to write a biography on Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., what would you do? He was assassinated about 50, 55 years ago or so. What would you do? Well, you'd probably collect as much information as you could, right? You'd read articles, you'd watch video, you'd, you'd see the newspaper, you'd maybe pull other uh, biographies together. But it wasn't actually that long ago, so you would probably toddle yourself off and find somebody who knew him, who met with him, who traveled with him, who heard him preach, who heard the words, whose, whose life was forever shaped by the work of Dr. King, right? Of course you would. Now imagine as you're collecting this, this information, you sit down across from one of these eyewitnesses, these, these people who were with Dr. King over coffee, and you said to them, you know what? Actually, there's no way he actually said that. You're making that up. That can't be true. Would you do that? It depends what they say, I guess, but probably not. How could they not remember what he said? They, they, they gave a, a window of their life to follow him, to listen to his teachings, to be kind of uh, in, the, in the best way possible, caught up in the moment, right? They, of course they would remember what he said. Now, the four Gospels that we have, the biographies, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were all written within the lifetimes of eyewitnesses to the events they describe. The earliest one, the Gospel of Mark, was, was likely written between 35 and 45 years later, maybe even sooner. So that's not very far from when it happened. In history, to write a biography, this is, a, this is a, actually a really tight window, a really close window for a, for a histi historiographer, that's a word, to write about a subject. In fact, uh, the, the, the best information we have about Roman Emperor Claudius was written by uh, Suetonus and, and Tacitus more than 60 years after he died, the emperor died. But no one questions their biographical skills, right? Now, it was the job of Jesus' disciples. This is what they gave their lives to, to, to walk around with Jesus 
to hear what he said, to memorize what he said, and then to kind of put that into their lives and then teach it later. And it wasn't just the 12 and after Judas the 11, but there were many, many informal disciples who, who gave their lives for years to follow him, who were caught up in the movement in the best way possible, had their lives transformed by this Jesus. They wouldn't have forgot what he said. So when we think about the writers of the Gospels, and could they have possibly remembered something from 30 years ago? I don't want you to think of me coming to you today and saying, hey, I, uh, what was kindergarten like for you? Give me five pages by next week. Okay? Maybe we can all have some vague recollections of 30, 40, 50 years ago that we could put down, but that's not what's happening here. Instead, picture, I read this analogy, I think it's fantastic. Imagine being a roadie for the early days of U2. Okay, you're, you're on the bus with Bono and the edge and, and you're, you're traveling and all of a sudden the, the, the stadiums start to fill and the audiences grow and the songs get picked up and the band just gets bigger and bigger and you're on the bus with Bono. And instead of ask me asking you about kindergarten, say, what did he say on the bus? Right? Like, what, did, what were some of the, the early lyrics from his songs? What, what, was, it, what was it like as the, the band took off? Right? You would remember that. And of course, that has nothing to say with what we believe is the, the doctrine of inspiration, which says that not only were these, these gospel writers, you know, they, they knew their stuff, but they were guided by the Holy Spirit to write their gospels as well, right? Now, the latest gospel that we have is, the, the latest written is John, maybe 60 years after, and he was probably writing in his 70s or 80s. I mean, 70s or 80s, that's still a young man, right? Okay. <laughs> Definitely Definitely close enough to Jesus for us to see him as a credible witness. Can we trust the Gospels? Yes, we can. The next kind of uh, popular critique of the Gospels is, well, aren't, aren't, weren't the Gospels just written as propaganda? Didn't the church just kind of put some things together to, to, to give themselves more power, make themselves look really good? And this was really popularized by Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code back in 2003. I don't know if you've read that or seen the movie. I'm a Tom Hanks fan, so of course I've seen the movie. But the, the charge is that basically the church did whatever they could to suppress the real truth about who Jesus was, but then built him up into this larger-than-life God-man type character so that they could step into power and rule. The truth is, very few historians, even secular historians, agree with this take. It's really nice to think about on like a popular level. You can really, like you can tweet this out and feel really proud of yourself, but legitimate historians don't agree with this. The thing is, if the disciples and the church in the the coming decades and, and centuries after Jesus lived decided to fabricate the Gospels as propaganda, they did a horrible job. Time and time again, they, the, the writers make themselves look like idiots, right? They're, they're, they're just foolish and fools. Repeatedly, the authors, they don't understand what Jesus said. How many times do we, do we with our, you know, looking back glasses, are like, man, guys, why didn't you, why can't you get this, right? Jesus repeatedly calls the authors of these biographies, you of little faith. Peter perhaps the most celebrated of the disciples, right? Tries to talk Jesus out of the cross. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. 
This is not good propaganda material. Three times and he denied Jesus, right? And as the church started to grow, if, if anyone had the power or the opportunity to censor what was written in the biographies, it was Peter. And instead we have the Gospel of Mark. Peter kind of working through Mark to write that, right? If the Gospel authors had been trying to, to make things up to serve a political agenda, they did a really bad job. It's actually far more likely that they wrote the things they did in the Gospels because that's what happened. And they were trying to remember it. And they were trying to preserve it for us. And so we have these early written Gospels based on eyewitness accounts. Names are named in the Gospels. So you could say, go talk to him if you don't believe me. And the Gospels are recognized by even modern historians as the best historical sources we have for the life of Jesus. Another question about this probably you've heard is, don't the Gospels contradict one another? Anybody heard that one? Think of it this way. If at about 12, 15, following the service, I meet a handful of you out in the parking lot and say, write me a page, a one-pager on what happened in the service this morning. Do you think they'd all look the same? Of course they wouldn't. Had you all experienced the exact same service? Yes, but they all look different, right? Think of it, think of it this way. If I asked the tech team, Thomas is going to say, Sean put together slides that don't work quite the, the right way I wanted to, so I've had to adjust a little bit. But it, it went okay. If I asked the musicians, they said, you know what, we, uh, it's nice to have two services because some of those maybe things that I didn't like in the first service, I got to tune up for the second service, and that's great. If I asked uh, a young parent, they're like, my, my kid was in the back. I hope he was okay. That's fine. I like hope we didn't disturb anyone. If I asked some, one of you who is hosting Easter dinner this afternoon, you're saying, don't ask me these questions now. I got to get home. I got a turkey in the oven, right? I'm focused on that. Of course, they would sound different. We have to remember that these, these Gospels that we have are tremendously condensed biographies. Jesus' public ministry was three, three and a half years long, and it's written down into a book that we could sit down and read in two or maybe three hours. Our authors were extremely selective as well. They, 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 they picked certain stories and, and, and placed them within their writings to, to highlight what they wanted to tell. And let's not, not kid ourselves. If there's differences in the stories between the Gospels, Jesus probably told his stories more than once in three years, right? Have you ever told a story more than once in the last three years? Probably, right? I've only got like six stories that I tell people. They're not the same every time. Our gospel writers, too, they aren't dry historians. Don't think of them as like computer programs, that, computer programmers that just have to write code so that it works. And the most important thing is that it works. They're, they're artists, right? They're, they're, they're pulling together a story, the greatest story ever told. A couple of um, examples that maybe, you, maybe you've heard of, maybe you haven't, of potential uh, contradiction. In Mark chapter 10, we read that Jesus healed uh, blind Bartimaeus on the way to Jericho. Okay, the story happens great. In Matthew 20, in the same place, so different author, writing about the same thing, says Jesus uh, healed two anonymous beggars in that same place. Is this a contradiction? Well, we're not sure, but no, it doesn't have to be, right? Mark is highlighting one person and gave us his name, so if we were still there, we could go find Bartimaeus and say, tell, tell me about this. 
Whereas Matthew is telling us that there were two, there were more people there, right? Just because there's one doesn't mean there's not two, doesn't mean there's not ten. Uh, again, the angels at the empty tomb. We read one account of it this morning in Matthew. It sounds from Matthew that there was one there. We flip to another gospel. We're told that there's two angels there. Is that a contradiction? Not necessarily. If there's two, is there also one? Yes. There, again, there could have been ten there. We don't know. We do this all the time, and we accept it all the time in our lives, but for some reason, we think it that can't be right in the gospel. But right before the service, I walk up to the front, and I talk to Pam. Great job in the first service, Pam. Uh, trust it'll be a great job in the second service. Turn around and walk back. That's my story. That's what I write when I write my report for the day. At the tech booth back there, they write the same report. At 10.50, Sean walked to the front. And he talked to the band. Contradiction? Not necessarily, right? Here's perhaps the best analogy. There might be better ones, but I think this is the best one that I've heard in a long time of how we reconcile the four Gospels and their apparent contradictions. Don't think of them as four courtroom witnesses that are sitting on the bench swearing to tell the exact whole truth and nothing but the truth as, like, as rigid stories. Instead, think of our four Gospels as four eulogies. Men who had been shaped by Jesus and who want to just tell their story as they experience it and who are aware of the other ones probably too and want to just have one build on the other. Is Jesus' life historical? Our evidence is that these Gospels, these biographies were written not long after he died. Within the, the lifetimes of eyewitnesses, Beyond, as one writer says, beyond any reasonable measure, the Gospels have very good historical credentials. Much better, in fact, than the many documents we take to be good, solid biographies of other ancient figures. Was his life historical? There's great evidence to say yes. And if you don't believe that, what is your evidence? The second question is, is Jesus' death ethical? Remember why we're here. We are gathering to celebrate that this innocent man died and rose again on a, from a, the grave. But the question is why? And so again, we, we turn to the Gospels. And we see that, that Jesus came and he declared that he was the universal, everlasting king who, who died. Uh, and his mission, sorry, was to come and die so that others could live. And the Gospels show that, that Jesus thought of himself as this. The Gospels write to, to present Jesus as the perfect Son of God who died a horrific death because other people sinned. So this raises some good, legitimate questions. First, what kind of God punishes sin? Who, it, who then is a sinner? And how is this killing of an innocent person just? First, what kind of God punishes people for their sin. Our culture, maybe you've noticed, doesn't like the word sin anymore, right? Wrong is just might just be wrong for you, generally. There's, there's still a few evils that we might all call evil, but that list is dwindling. But no matter what you believe, every single one of us can probably agree that humans have an incredible capacity for spilling innocent blood. We are great at killing one another, and we always have been. Maybe not us as individuals, but generally, right? 
We just had another school shooting last week, right? So we may, we may see evil in the headlines. We may have evil done to us as well. But there's one thing that is undeniable is that we as humans have the capacity for doing wrong and committing evil. And so when, when this question rises up of, well, what kind of God punishes people for their skin? Maybe, maybe a better question is actually, where is God of justice? And why doesn't he step in? Well, that's actually the Easter story. So the Gospels claim that a first century Jew known as Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth was the creator God of the universe and stepped into the world in human form. In Luke 1.26, and following the angel told Mary her son would be the son of God. In John 10, Jesus claimed to be one with the one true God, saying, I actually am God, basically. A couple chapters later in John 14, we read that, that if we look at Jesus, we will see this God himself, the God of justice. So because of all this, we do have, have the God who stepped into the world. If Jesus is God, which he claimed to be, and the Gospels present him to be, then he is also the rightful judge of the earth. If he's the God that made us, then, then our hearts belong to him. If he wrote the laws of gravity, he can write the laws of right and wrong. But rather than him coming and telling us, you know what, it's okay, you're, you're pretty good, sure, well, let's, we've got some, some growth areas over here, but you're pretty good, we'll just pat you on the back and ruffle your head and send you along. Jesus came and said, listen, guys, I know you've heard it said don't murder, but I tell you, don't, like, if you've been angry with somebody, you're liable to judgment. You've heard it said that you shouldn't commit adultery, but I say anyone who looks at someone else with lust in their eyes has already committed adultery with them in, in their hearts. And as if that was enough, Jesus was asked, hey, I, I, someone said, you know, I don't want to be a sinner, Jesus. How do I, how do I be right? And he said, well, here's the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Oh, and love your neighbor as yourself. Keep these and you're good. Well, I'm 0 for 4, and if you're honest, I suspect you are too. And as if that's not enough, Jesus quickly followed up his greatest commandment, a statement there, telling a parable about who he was talking about when he said neighbor. When I think neighbor, it's like, okay, so I have to, be, I have to love my neighbor as myself. Okay, I, 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 I kind of I like them. I can be kind to them. Okay, they're, they're nice. I can be good to them. It's like, no, no, actually, here's what I mean, Jesus says, when I mean neighbor. That stranger from a radical religious group that you grew up being taught to hate, neighbor. There's a whole other message there, right? Sermon message there. The one that our culture, even our church culture, has raised us up to hate. Jesus says, no, no, that, that's your neighbor. Neighbors, not just friends, but includes enemies. So from Jesus' perspective, which if he is God, he has the perspective, we are all utter moral failures. Welcome to Trinity. So glad you're here with us. The thing is, we don't need five steps to a better life. We need a savior. We need radical transformation. Next question, but who is a sinner? And we're leaning there already. We're getting there already a little bit, right? I can hear 
I can hear the pushback either from you or from someone you know saying, you know, I get what you're saying, but I, I'm not perfect, but I'm pretty good. And I can find people who are worse than me. So surely I'm different than the murderer. I'm different than the adulterer. I'm different than them, right? Because I haven't actually done those things. Let's think about it this way. Imagine for the rest of the day, you were to walk around with like a cartoon comic strip thought bubble over your head, broadcasting in 4K every thought that went through your little brain. Would anybody be up for that? No. Okay. So, all have fallen short of a glorious standard that God has given us, right? But still, it is very likely that, that none of us have committed murder. But are we all that different just because we're, maybe we have a different life and we've been dealt a different hand? Jesus' point is that it's actually what's in our heart that matters. That's the standard. We can, we can control and, and police and, and modify our behavior all we want, but it's, it's what's in our heart. And every single one of us deserves God's judgment because of what's in our heart. And yet, instead of coming and crushing us, Jesus came and was crushed for us. That was the mission. That's why he came. He came, he loved us so much that he was glad to die for us. That's the scandal of the gospel. He didn't come to bat, pat good people on the back and send them along their way, but he came for every single person who realized their need for a Savior and put their trust in him. I saw even just the other day the, the charge of no matter how you slice Easter, it's just divine child abuse. Anyone else heard that one? God killed his son, right? The child abuse. Is the cross just? Another example, analogy that maybe helps. When my wife and I got married, we got a joint bank account. And our bank accounts and assets and everything we had from before got merged into one. And all of a sudden, we were sharing one another's burdens, financial burdens, right? In our, when we got married, we both had some schooling left to do. So our first year of marriage, I put a pause on my school and I, and I worked so that Naomi could finish hers. And then she graduated and started her job and I quit my job and I went back to finish my school. And so during those windows of time, the financial burden of our household was on one of us or the other. Now, according to the Bible, when you put your trust in Jesus you become spiritually joined to him more deeply than, than a, an earthly marriage, which is meant to kind of reflect, could, could ever be. So when Jesus went to the cross, he took on willingly and carried your burden of sin on him. And more than that, he didn't just take it and go to the cross, but he take it, took it, went to the cross, and gave you back his goodness in exchange. That's a really good deal. See, Jesus wasn't just some random bystander who accidentally got swept up in, in a religious movement and murdered by mistake. But that's why he came. He came to freely take our sin on himself so that we are free to live eternally with him. Now, it is our, our, our current kind of Western culture has this, this deep cultural belief that, that, that human beings are generally good. And if, if something goes bad, we look for an excuse, Right? Oh, they, 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 there's racial injustice here, that's why. 
There's financial injustice. They were raised in a rough neighborhood. They had bad parents. They had bad education. All the things. There's there's trauma. All like legitimate reasons that things happen. Okay. But if that's our cultural focus, then the idea that God, that, first of all, that there may be a God, but that God has the right to judge us is completely foreign. But Jesus takes a different view. He says, evil comes from every single one of our hearts. It's in us. Because of sin, it's part of who we are. And so God is absolutely right to judge us. But Jesus came and did something about it. He went to the cross by choice to take the consequences for sin on himself so we could be forgiven and embraced by God himself. A lot of info there. First, we looked at, is Jesus' life historical? And I hope that we can see the cases that, yes, it is. Second, is Jesus' death ethical? And yes, I would say the case is strong that it is. The third, and really everything hinges on this, is, is Jesus' resurrection credible? Did the resurrection really happen? Uh, Everything, it's it's all about this, right? The Apostle Paul wrote, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our faith is in vain and, and, and we're wasting our time here. Now, many today believe, uh, uh, kind of take this claim that Jesus was raised from the dead and say it's completely unbelievable. Dead people don't come back to life. Maybe our gullible first century forefathers were tricked somehow, but we're enlightened. We're scientific. We know so much more. There's, there's no way we could believe anything like that anymore. However, uh, Ian Hutchinson, who's a professor of nuclear science and, and engineering at MIT, points out actually that this is really important, don't miss this, that science actually cannot disprove the resurrection because miracles aren't something that science is equipped to handle. Science can't disprove the the resurrection because miracles aren't something that science is equipped to handle. Here's what I mean. He says, the natural science describes normal, reproducible working of the world in nature. Miracles, by definition, are not normal or reproducible experiences in nature. So they are inherently abnormal. He also goes on, he wrote a a great little article that I'll plan to post on our social media feeds today or tomorrow. He goes on to point out that the people that first developed what we now call science in the 16th and 17th centuries, the only reason they started science was because they believed that there is a rational creator God who put the world in place and created us in his image. So if we dig into the world, if we dig into biology and physics and chemistry and all these things, we'll actually get a better picture of this creator God. That's where science comes from. And so if science can't have the capacity to prove or importantly disprove the resurrection, what do we do? Well, again, Hutchinson points us back to history. Now, I will admit, confess, I have no problem saying we actually cannot prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the resurrection existed because we're not in the first century, we're not in Israel, and Jesus is not walking. If he walked into the room, maybe that, okay, that might give it away a little bit. However, you cannot prove that it didn't happen. Because we're not in the first century, we're not in Israel, and, well, Jesus isn't walking into the room, I don't think so. All that said, we can quite convincingly, I think, show that the resurrection claim is 
is the most plausible answer to the reason, uh, to the things that took place in that time. Here's what I mean. We'll look at four pieces of historical evidence for the resurrection. And I think every single one of them is pretty convincing on their own. But when you stack them on top of each other, there's a really strong case for a literal historic resurrection. And here's the other thing. When someone comes and says to you, that couldn't happen. People don't come back from the dead. Like, I know. How else do you explain these things? Okay. The first kind of historical evidence is the outbreak of Christianity. In AD 64, just 30 years after Jesus' death, the uh, Emperor Nero blamed Christians for the great fire in Rome. And uh, Roman historian Tacitus writes this about this group of Christians that had started kind of stirring up. And you can hear kind of the, the, the disdain dripping in his words as he writes these things. He says, Christus, the founder of the name, the, the Christians, had undergone the death penalty in the reign of Tiberius, sentenced by pro procurator Pontius Pilate. Ah, there's some historical evidence for the life of Jesus. And this pernicious superstition was checked for a moment when he was murdered. But it only to break out once more, not merely in Judea, the home of the disease, but in Rome itself, where all things horrible and shameful in the world collect and become fashionable. Even though Jesus was crucified, Christianity was spreading. And in fact, it spread faster after he died than it started to gather momentum while he was alive. Within those first few centuries, Christianity traveled in every direction from Israel to Egypt to North Africa to Ethiopia to Turkey to Armenia to Iraq to Persia and India. It, it, it spread like wildfire. By AD 30, even though there was intense persecution on the church, historians estimate that about 10% of the Roman Empire identified as Christian. That's massive. And 12 years later or so, 312, the emperor himself converted to Christianity. Now today, almost a third of the human beings on the globe call themselves followers of Jesus. And that number, contrary to what the media might say, is growing, not shrinking. And despite what some critics in the West say, Christianity isn't a Western or just a white man's faith. Followers of Jesus are by far the most racially and culturally diverse followers of any world religion. And it's, it's remarkable that the home, the, the hub or the core of Christianity is the only one that's moved over the years. It started in Israel, and then it grew and it moved into Europe, and then it moved to the West, and now it's moved into the global South, and it's not going to be long. In about five years, we're projecting that there will be more Christians in, America, in China than in America. It's, it's, it's growing. Now, explosive growth doesn't prove that Jesus was raised from the dead. No problem. But the fact that some man who was born into a conquered people group in some obscure Roman province who was poor, died young, never led an army, never wrote a book, never sat on a throne, has become the most influential and impactful human ever needs an explanation. The Romans were used to crucifying troubled leaders, people who tried to raise up and, and who were rebels, and they were good at it. We'll get that in a couple minutes. And the Gospels tell us how cowardly the disciples were after their leader was arrested. So it does not make sense for this movement to explode. 
unless the resurrection happened. Second, the message of Jesus. Many suggest that Jesus of Nazareth was, was just some inspiring rabbi. Maybe he had, he had a few more parlor tricks than the other ones of the day. He, he kind of drew more people to himself. He maybe a little bit more charismatic than some. And so he, he, was, he was impressive in what he taught. But actually, he was mythologized over time. And the, kind of the farther we get away from Jesus, the, the bigger he was. And th- this is like playground talk, right? Well, my dad can do this. Oh, yeah, well, my dad can do this. Oh, yeah, well, my dad, right? It, it, the stories grow and grow and grow. And at first blush, this, this idea sounds kind of plausible, right? Maybe this did happen. One of the, the new atheists, Richard Dawkins, kind of imagines it this way. He says the early recruits to, to, to a young Christian religion, they were really happy to just pass on all the stories and rumors about Jesus without checking them. They're the first ones that needed Facebook to fact check their posts. But they messed up. But there's a problem with this conclusion. There's a problem problem with Dawkins' statement. The Christian message is, we've already talked about it, is that Jesus is the Son of God. He died to take the punishment for sin of anyone who will trust in him. He rose from the dead, and he welcomes anyone into to have life because of him. Without the rising from the dead part, it's there's nothing. You can't have the story without the resurrection. So how could it have been added later? Second, if, if the resurrection were a myth, it, it, we would expect it to show up long after all the eyewitnesses were dead. Right? If, I'm, if I'm trying to trick you, I'm not going to tell you something that you could walk down the street and say, Sean says this, is he out to lunch? We would expect to see resurrection showing up like hundreds of years later. But it's some of the earliest letters of the church, Paul's letters to the church, where the resurrection says, no, this, this, this is what we're sticking our life on. Third, if the resurrection were made up, it's hard to see how and why the disciples could have pulled this off. We didn't actually read they're ordinary, uneducated fishermen. They're, they're scared of all the things we read in the Gospels. So how could they then, in that hiding in that room, decide, you know what? We're going to be next on the cross, but what if we say this? And they keep passing it on and passing it on. And then it's not like they just had nice, clean lives and, and died as old men having propagated this lie for 60 years. They were all martyred. They all paid with their lives. I don't think they would have died for a lie. The third evidence we talked about a little bit is the Romans. The reason we look to the Romans as evidence because some people suggest that Jesus didn't actually die. Like it's called the swoon theory. It's kind of uh, bubbling back up as, as, as prominent again. But what they say is, instead of a resurrection, we had a resuscitation. Yes, Jesus was beaten. Yes, he was nailed to a cross. But even Pilate was surprised that he died so fast. So maybe he wasn't dead. And just when they, when they took him off the cross, they, they put him in the cool air of the grave. He had a good couple nights rest. And then pushed the rock away and carried on. But the Romans were experts at executing people. And they knew when a person was dead. Yes, Pilate was surprised he'd died as fast as he was, but to make sure, they shoved a spear in Jesus' side, and the, the Gospels tell us, out came blood and water, which our modern trauma medicine says, no, that, that's, that spear hit the heart. That's why it came out like that. He was dead. It's not just the Gospels that detail how he was killed as well. Josephus talks about it. Romans talk about it. Roman historians talk about it. 
And really, Jesus was likely the most high-profile person, criminal, that these soldiers had ever come across or would ever come across in their lives. Do you think they'd botch that one? Maybe, but give me a better explanation if that's what you're going to go with, okay? The last thing, the women. All four Gospels, we read Matthew, all four Gospels tell the Easter story in their own way. But all four clearly tell that Jesus' female followers were the first to find his empty tomb and to hear that he'd been risen from the dead. Matthew and John tell us that, that Jesus first appeared to a female disciple. The first time he, he met someone in the flesh, it was to one of the women disciples. And this might not mean much to us, but to a first century hearer, this was really significant. One... Uh, Actually, second, second historian says that, you know what, actually, uh, women were thought by educated men to be gullible in religious matters and especially prone to superstition and fantasy and excessive religious practices. See, if you were trying to convince a first century audience of something truly unbelievable, and let's be clear, first century people, they're not dumb. They know when you die, you stay dead. So if you're going to try to convince them that, no, no, actually, this is normal, but actually somebody rose from the dead, the last person you would hinge your story on is the testimony of the women. So why would all four Gospels agree on this? And why would John spend most of John chapter 20 detailing this personal experience between Mary and Jesus? Remember that scene? We're going to look at it in just a minute. It's as though John wants every single one of us to picture ourselves in her sandals to picture our, our lives uh, standing next to Mary's as we've gone to the empty tomb. We see, okay, everything seemed to be happening. It seemed like, like God was here. The Messiah was here. He spoke to me. He valued me. He, I, I, like, but now he's dead. It's like John wants us standing next to that tomb and, and to see that, that the rock is rolled away and it's empty and there's some garden there and, and just, just, just begging the garden and saying, like, my life was a wreck. It seemed fixed, and now I don't even—I don't know what to do with myself anymore. If you, if gardener, sir, if you've hidden his body somewhere else, if you think someone else should be in here, just let me know where you dumped it so I can go say Alaska bye. Remember how Jesus, the gardener, answers her. He calls out her name, Mary. See, this isn't just, we've talked a lot about historical stuff, but this isn't just a historical phenomenon. The resurrection changes everything. The implications of Jesus' victory over sin and death cannot be overstated, and they're unapologetically personal. Put yourself in Mary's shoes. Or picture yourself today. I don't know where you're at, but, but picture yourself with our, our world around us is going crazy. I, like, I get anxious reading the news because I don't even know where to start. And it feels like maybe, maybe Jesus was going to change that, but now I don't know where he is. And instead of just being lost in the weight of everything, I hear the gardener say, Oh, Sean. Oh, Sean, I'm here. Many people today think that only our gullible, pre-scientific ancestors could possibly believe that somebody rose from the dead. But us modern, enlightened, educated people would never fall for a trick like that. But there are billions today who believe in the resurrection. 
and not just simple, uneducated fishermen. But within those billions are countless numbers of leading academics at the top universities in the planet in fields ranging from physics to philosophy and everything in between, from places like America and England and India and China and Iran. But it's not only the evidence that draws people to Jesus, but it's the offer that comes with it. See, throughout Jesus' life, he repeatedly said that he can take his followers through death and give them everlasting life with him. That's what's at stake. Jesus' promise is that if our faith is in him, even though we will physically die, we will have everlasting life with him. A life that is the full experience of relationship with Jesus and him as our Lord and Savior, our, our master and rescuer and leader. And so Jesus entered this world, not just on our good days, not just when we're at our best, but he entered the world to walk with us through our most painful moments and to carry us through them into everlasting joy. In John 11, maybe you remember the story, Jesus told a, a sister who was mourning over her brother Lazarus, said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe that? So Jesus here wasn't just saying that he could bring dead people back to life, which he did there, actually. But he's saying that being in relationship with him is actually what it means to be alive. If we're joined to him, not even death can kill us. And if we're not joined to him, our, our bodies may be alive for as, a certain amount of time, but we are spiritually dead. So here's the offer. And that Jesus' offer is one that is offensively exclusive. He says, I am the only way you can be made right with God. He doesn't say, I'm one way. I, I'd like it if you follow me because it might pad my ego and make me feel important that I've got more followers than the next world religion leader. He said, no, no, no. I'm the only way. But Jesus is also radically inclusive because he says, anyone, anyone who trusts in him can have eternal life. The message of Easter is that the king of the universe stepped into the world he created and died for us so that we could have a real, abundant, everlasting, eternal life. A life that is, is richer and more beautiful than <laughs> had some visitors in the first service like, man, this is a good place to have a church. Hey, like, I'm, it's amazing you guys get more beautiful than anything we could look out the windows and see or even imagine or anything we could experience in this world. Promised beyond our wildest imaginations as the Apostle Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 2. What no eye has seen and no ear has heard and no human heart has conceived, God has prepared these things for those who love him. So the question is, is Easter unbelievable? Did Jesus live? Was his, his death ethical? Did the resurrection happen? Is his offer good? Most importantly, will you accept it? Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for this day. 
this kind of if there's a, a highest Sunday of Sundays, it's this one where we where we have extra emphasis that you conquered sin and death for us. And so we say thank you. I pray that this morning through the songs we've sung, through the, the, the texts that we have read and will continue to, to close our service with, that we would have drawn our hearts to you. I, I pray that that even though this is maybe more of a an information type message, I pray that every single one of us would leave more confident in knowing that, no, no, we're not crazy for believing this. And that, that it wouldn't give us kind of big heads or, I don't know, the wrong kind of boldness, but that, but that this confidence would lead to worship. As we're reminded, Jesus, you did all of this for me and for us. So we say thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Team, would you come?